This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Happy Thursday afternoon. Glad you could be here today. A group of Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers have launched what's been described as Australia's largest sexual harassment claim against their former employer. The 12 women are taking one of Australia's largest horticulture companies, Perfection Fresh, to court with accusations of not providing a safe workplace. This case uh, that's been brought against Perfection Fresh is, we believe, one of the biggest sexual harassment cases in Australia. We've got everything from sexual propositioning, inappropriate language and behaviour, instances of physical groping and sexual assault. One woman has documented 100 allegations of groping and it's occurred in the glasshouse itself where these women work. Therefore, it's the employer's responsibility to ensure that that did not occur and to provide mechanisms to ensure that it does not occur for any other woman in that workplace. You'll learn more about that court case after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC WA, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. A new grain grower lobby group has officially been launched with a key focus of reinstating rebates for growers who sell grain to the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group. The Grain Bulk Handlers Association will hold its inaugural meeting tomorrow at Narrambeen, 280 kilometres east of Perth. The genesis of the group dates back to 2022, when, in an unprecedented move, the CBH Group decided it would direct the profits of its marketing and trading division, hundreds of millions of dollars, to the storage and handling division, rather than pay a rebate to growers. Newdigate farmer Bob Ifler is the Deputy Chair of Grain Bulk Handlers Association. He's worried the co-op will start offering growers less money for their grain and use the marketing and trading division as a cash cow to raise capital to invest in the supply chain. He says that's inequitable because it means growers who sell their grain to CBH will be funding the group's infrastructure plans and growers who sell to other traders won't contribute to the supply chain spend but will still benefit. For a long time, CBH have been paying rebates from the profits they made from the marketing and trading division and um, they suddenly cut them out and they're putting into them into infrastructure now and so there's a major concern and by doing so um, it means that they're obviously paying us less paying us less uh, than they should be and uh, keeping some of the profit keeping some of the money for profits we believe that uh, every ton of wheat every ton of grain should be paying um, its fair share towards infrastructure at the moment there's only about 43% of the grain is paying for the infrastructure. That other portion that isn't paying for the uh, infrastructure, where is that going? Well, obviously, the other marketers are having a heyday out of it because if CBH were paying that higher amount of money, um, that would have lifted the benchmark up and so every grower would have been also paid more. So the state itself, as well as farmers, is missing out on big dollars. 
and you've put out a petition as well that you're hoping people can sign. Uh, can you talk me through some of the, the main points of that petition that you're looking to address? Well, I guess we're, we want to um, sort of return to the fundamental principles of grower cooperatives where trading surplus would be returned to, back to the members. That's one of the things we want to, yeah, see, see uh, well, at the moment, CBH is saying they only want to sell about up to 50% of the grain. Well, we feel that they should be trying to sell as much as they possibly can rather than other marketers doing it. But, you know, it's all about the prices they're going to pay. This infrastructure spending that they're talking about, surely uh, yourself and other producers in the region would benefit from that infrastructure. Why is that such a, a sore topic for you? Yeah, well, we said, firstly, we do agree that a lot of money needs to be spent on infrastructure to catch up on it and to, to modernise it all so the grain can be delivered to, our, to the other nations within a, probably about a seven-month period. So we need to streamline all that. We believe on that. But we also believe that everyone, every tonne, should pay its fair share towards this, the use of these facilities, and at the moment they're not, and that's the problem, because we're having to pay the lion's share of the infrastructure. So that's what we find unfair about it. And whereas that's, they used to pay rebates back to growers all the time, <laughs> they've had a, a couple of years where they lost money, money was... Uh, extra money they made was, was put back in to pay those, the deficit off and then um, they've got a very large capital base now and so that's all been got from those people who, who have been selling grain through them so that's, that's all fine but we simply don't, we want rebates paid for any of the profits they make and there's plenty of ways in which they can do it. If uh, CBA send any of their representatives along to this meeting on Friday, what's the outcome that you would like them to take away from the, uh, uh, I guess, the meeting? Well, we want, want them to take back the concerns of the meeting. And, of course, the petition that we're, we're going to run will uh, iron out whether people really want those the same concerns as we're talking about um, and take them back to, to the board and uh, discuss further with the board and also... Uh, we've been invited to go back and talk with CBH uh, before April this year with our concerns and see what they can, we can, do, they can do about it. Newgate Farmer and Deputy Chair of the new Grain Bulk Handlers Association speaking to Andrew Chounding. 11 past 12 here on The Country Out. Where do you sit? On which side of the fence do you sit on this rebate discussion? You keen to get your hands on one of those rebates when the profits have been incredible or you're quite happy to see that money being directed into the supply chain, into infrastructure? Let me know on the text 0448 Because not all growers agree with Bob's assessment and concerns about CBH's decision to drop grower rebates. Mark Fowler is president of the WA Farmers Grain Section. He says almost every grower sells some grain to CBH every season, so that means every grower is making some contribution to the co-op's infrastructure program. The first point I'd make is that most growers sell a significant proportion of their grain to CBH, and my understanding is that CBH buys grain from 90 to 95 percent of all growers so every grower actually is selling grain to cbh so while some growers might sell more or less i think that's the first point the second point is that when you sell grain for cash 
you all, all risk passes to the buyer. If the price subsequently goes down and CBH, as the buyer, if they make a loss, they don't come back to the seller to get more money from them or get to recover some of the money purchase price that was paid. If you want that kind of risk arrangement, you put your money in a pool where you are on risk for price fluctuations, either up or down. The third point is that most growers, in fact, any rational grower is actually selling grain at the price that they think they can get or to the buyer that they think they can get the best economic return from. The idea that people are selling grain to CBH out of some kind of loyalty or to support the cooperative, I think is, I don't know that that's as prevalent as people are saying. I don't think it's very prevalent at all. A rational investor should, or a rational uh, grower should sell their grain to um, whoever has the best price or whoever they think they can ultimately get to get the best return off, which leads to the next question about to what extent would someone in those circumstances have reasonably expected to receive a rebate to make up that maximum economic return. Now, given that CBH at that time hadn't paid many rebates leading up to the harvest of 21 and 22, which is what we're talking about, they've only paid a, they've only paid a few rebates in their history. They've never paid a rebate greater than $7 a tonne. And if you instead returned that value by way of rebate, not dividend, it would be at the order of $40 a tonne. Um, so it would be massively in excess of what they've done in the past. And the payment of a rebate is always something, it was expressly always something that was at the discretion of the board. So no one would ever bargain on getting a rebate because it was always a discretionary payment. CBH had also suffered a number of trading losses in previous years, and they'd made very clear that they needed to address the equity position within M&T before there was ever any consideration of the payment of a rebate. So I don't think it could be reasonably said that any grower that sold to CBH expected a rebate as part of their return for selling their grain to CBH. So I don't, I don't, for all of those reasons, I don't accept the notion that people who sold to CBH are somehow funding a greater proportion of the network. With the state of the industry's infrastructure network as it stands and the pressure that it came under uh, back in, was it, 2021-22, uh, would your members be happy for those additional funds to be prioritised towards things like the upgrades to the network over the next 10 years, or would they like to see a return to the you know, dividends payments? I've got to be careful how I answer that question, Andrew, because whilst our organisation has, with a lot of rigour, focused on the, the decision to pay that money um, from M&T to storage and handling in 2023 when that question came up. That was in the circumstances that applied at the time. Our organisation hasn't focused yet on the question of whether the payment of a dividend rather than a rebate this year would be supported. All I can do is look at the logic that we used last time and see whether it holds true. And I think that the, the critical issue here is the state of the network and what needs to be done and where the best return can occur. So I think most growers are supportive of the idea that if there is a surplus within the group, that it would be money well spent with an excellent return on investment if it's spent on building our capacity to get grain from upcountry to port because that has created a massive opportunity cost to growers in the past few years. I think that Whilst we've had a, a, a smaller harvest this year, the supply chain crisis remains. We're only one season away from having a, the, exactly the same situation return again. I think the tax and regulatory logic remains unchanged. And 
I think the other thing is that CBH actually, if they weren't very clear leading up to last year's AGM that they that they weren't going to pay a rebate, they certainly have been very clear since that time that CBH does not plan nor does it wish to pay rebates from M&T to growers and they have a lot of regulatory constraints around doing that. So growers should have been in no doubt that there was not a plan in the coming year to pay rebates. So they shouldn't have ever expected one when selling grain to CBH. Mark Fowler, who's president of WA Farmers Grain Section, speaking to Andrew Chounding. The state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, says the primary purpose of marketing and trading is to facilitate a competitive grain market. The co-op says record harvests and the geopolitical situation created unique circumstances. And after considering many factors, it determined that investing in the network would deliver the greatest value to WA growers. 18 past 12. Well, one of the most essential nutrients in crop production is having a moment in the spotlight as countries around the world try and meet targeted reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. Dr Sherry Stridehorst is a Canadian farmer and agronomist and she's in Australia this week speaking at the Grains Research and Development Corporation's research update in Adelaide. She says in Canada there's growing public and political pressure to reduce nitrogen use. And while it's not policy yet, it's critical to use nitrogen efficiently. So for every pound or kilogram of nitrogen that you put into the soil in terms of fertiliser, you want more grain, you want more protein. And I think that's a universal goal that all farmers have because we improve that nitrogen use efficiency and we improve our profitability. Um, One of the things that's maybe a little higher on the Canadian panic list is policy being proposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions due to fertilizers that's been proposed uh, to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions associated with fertilizer use by 30%. And um, right now the, the government is not Uh, implemented that in Canada, but it certainly created a space for the need for research to understand what possibilities there are. And um, certainly there is not a desire in Canada to reduce fertilizer use by 30% because growers um, see a a direct cut to the grain they're able to produce and therefore the profit. So that's what has maybe motivated a bunch of the research that we have undertaken in this area. Some of the solutions we are looking at to maintain the rates of fertilizer is to use enhanced efficiency fertilizers that produce or that prevent nitrogen loss from volatilization, from denitrification and from leaching. And I think these are things that global grain industry needs to deal with. And, you know, we're not seeing a a huge benefit from these in terms of increasing yields, but um, the greenhouse gas emissions is part of the research that we're still putting that data together for. And, you know, um, at the end of the day, it becomes who pays for it and the social good associated with that. Because I understand some of these fertilisers can be quite costly as well, or certainly higher cost than, than what's currently being used. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't think I um, <laughs> have the numbers off the top of my head to quote, but anytime you add a cost, when there is no additional grain or higher protein and nothing to offset that cost, um, it just becomes a burden to the farm. So if, you know, society, and I think reducing greenhouse gas emissions due to food production, is there society good there? What kind of system or mechanism um, will we come up with if there is a particular product that helps to achieve that? um, What kind of shared goals can we, and shared costs can we have um, 
to achieve that. As you say, uh, farming systems in Canada are a bit different to what we're doing here in Australia and yep. uh, and obviously government policies are quite different, but do you then see some similarities in, in what the challenges that then farmers are facing in this space to what farmers are, are, are challenged with here? Yes, certainly. I think the similarities is that, and I've heard it here at the conference, that our buyers internationally, both for Canadian grains and Australian grains, are under great scrutiny to verify how we are growing these grains, how that we're growing them responsibly. And we all have to, I think, collect the data on that and um, set targets to meet that. And it's just not a simple, easy path to get there. So we will each have our own paths, but I think the end goal for all grain producing exporting regions will be the same. That is Canadian farmer and agronomist Dr Sherry Stridehorse speaking to Selena Green. 21 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. An update from the newsroom at half past 12 and then checking the weather conditions around Western Australia. I mean, it can be summed up in one word, can't it? Hot. Um, Hopefully there's a little more detail than that from one end of the state to the other. We'll cross to the Bureau shortly. First, though, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility, known as NAIF, was established in 2016 with the aim of stimulating development in the north by handing out concessional loans to companies with big plans. But over the years, it's copped some heavy criticism. So this week, the federal government tabled in Parliament what it calls a new investment mandate for the NAIF. Madeline King is the Minister for Northern Australia and for Resources. She says the aim is to make more NAIF investment dollars available to a wider range of projects. This Labor government knows how important the economic development of the North is uh, and that's why we have NAIF uh, looking out for lots of different projects, uh, a more expansive view of what's possible uh, for the NAIF to support. Uh, And and when you say more funding, do you mean more dollars? Well, last year we already have expanded the amount of money that NAIF can contribute uh, to these projects. It's up to a $7 billion facility. But now we are also widening the types of projects uh, it can look into. So, for instance, we've uh, instructed NAIF to extend its investment into social infrastructure. So that might include remote and regional housing or other types of uh, infrastructure and communities that, that, that benefit those communities on a smaller scale. One of your colleagues famously called the NAIF the No Actual Infrastructure Fund. Lots of dollars committed, but no money actually going out the door. Has that story changed much in the last 12 months? Uh, I'm really uh, happy to report that story uh, has changed enormously. We have got uh, so much funding out the door, we've had to extend uh, the funding of the NAIF. And that's why we have gone up to the $7 billion mark available for the facility because uh, projects are being funded uh, and they're working. And uh, some of them, the older projects, are now returning money uh, back into the budget as they repay these loans. So... My objective is to ensure that NAIF works harder for the North and for the people of the North. And so I've got teams in the NAIF and they do a a really terrific job and they're spread right around the country, uh, in Darwin, in Cairns, uh, in Townsville and in Western Australia. So they're, they're on the ground looking for these projects and helping people who have 
that idea for a project and need a bit of assistance pulling the funding strings together and the NAIF can back them in. So uh, it's a really hands-on uh, now, the NAIF, uh, to make sure these projects can happen for communities right across the top end uh, from west to east. In the announcement today about the NAIF's new investment mandate, it talks about how the NAIF can help Australia achieve its net zero target. How? Well, the NAIF invests in critical minerals projects, uh, and we know critical minerals are required for all the green energy technologies that we will need. So a part of the investment mandate is making sure that $500 million uh, of the NAIF is focused on enabling the critical mineral strategy and therefore the net zero emissions uh, strategy of the whole nation. And this is part of our, quite frankly, our global contribution to net zero, because if we are able to invest in these projects uh, and have these minerals uh, and rare earths available to our partners to help us build those green energy technologies, that's how we meet those targets. And for you, what's the NAIF's greatest achievement? I think its greatest achievement is now having uh, a wide portfolio of projects across uh, a lot of activities and, and we're making it better you, for You're the not willing to say one? Oh, but there are too many. I couldn't choose. How can you choose favourites when the NAIF has uh, uh, got so many things uh, going for it? I think the student accommodation uh, up in Queensland has been really important. Something that's not often talked about is how important it is to have student accommodation available uh, for campuses in the north so that people from all sorts of backgrounds can have access to university education in place. And I think that's a really important project that I, that I am really uh, super proud of. I'm super proud of the work NAIF has done into a number of critical minerals uh, projects around the country. Uh, also into developing new uh, salt projects, things you don't kind of think about, but, you know, we need salt, you know, not only for us as, as humans, <laughs> but we also need it for uh, chemical processes. So it's just the diversity of the projects that I'm I'm really proud of. And into the future, it's, this focus or new focus on social infrastructure is really important. And, and just yesterday, I met with a traditional owner who alerted me to a potential housing project in Cairns. And, you know, more positive uh, uh, stories from the NAIF will uh, emerge and they will be around uh, this ability to create better housing opportunities as well as other, as other economic development right across the north. And just finally, Minister, I know you do have to go. Critical minerals like nickel, lithium, doing it really tough at the moment. Is this simply just the boom and bust nature of mining? Oh, look, you know, it could you could say that, but I think there's been a huge change in, in the situation for nickel with the uh, incredible investment combined with an export ban in Indonesia. So that's a that's a very significant change in the international nickel market. So it's not the same old, same old uh, boom and bust for resources. It's a new type of international market structure and that's why uh, I've met uh, very recently uh, and quickly with the industry leaders uh, as well as the state government and WIO, most of these nickel projects are. Mind you, there is nickel uh, refinery also in Tasmania that's been affected. So it is such a change that we need to make sure we understand it better uh, and we'll be working on some actions we can take forward about about nickel in particular. Lithium is a bit different. Uh, it, it is um, 
uh, and I have warned in, in it's warned in the critical mineral strategies, a thin market that's very new. It's going to have these fluctuations for some time to come. But I might add, uh, international markets, uh, you know, and their their vagaries is, is no consolation for the the women and men who are facing uncertainty because of mine closures. Minister for Northern Australia and Minister for Resources, Madeleine King. She was speaking to Matt Brown about why the federal government has just tabled in Parliament what it calls a new investment mandate for the NAIF, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility. Now, another convoy of wind turbine blades is set to depart Geraldton Port today on a 900-kilometre journey inland to the Jundi gold mine in the northern goldfields. The first 82-metre-long blade completed the journey on Monday after an overnight stopover at Sandstone. And there are four wind turbines in total, each with three blades, which are being transported to the mine. Warwick Andrews, the National Logistics Manager from transport company Rex J Andrews, says the plan to get the wind turbines to site has been 18 months in the making. Preparing the route getting all the approvals in place, negotiations with main roads to deliver these through to site safely. We seem to be seeing a lot more mining companies um, going down the the renewable energy path with wind turbines and that. What sort of other jobs have you got coming up? There's several mines that are already looking at establishing um, renewables on their premises. So the Tropicano mine, which is around about 400 kilometres east of Kalgoorlie's, been as remote as it is, is looking at putting the renewables in there to help with their energy needs. There's another project south of Jundee called the Bellevue Mine. They're also looking at putting in renewables for the same purpose and several other gold mines with a few more are actually heading down that path as well. And you were saying uh, Bellevue and Tropicana are both four turbines each, so 12 blades you've got to get down the, the highway. Yeah, 12 blades, and not just the blades as well. These towers are 130 metres in hub height, so there's far more to just the blades uh, than um, to be able to deliver these turbines. So you have the blades, the generators, uh, the hub and the nacelle, they're all crucial parts of these turbines and quite large sections as well. And you've got, obviously, custom-made trailers for the transport of these blades, don't you? Yeah, they do. These trailers are going to open out to... um, 60 metres in length. They uh, have the blade on, uh, once the blade's loaded on top, you've got an overall vehicle length of 92 metres. So you can imagine a load of that size getting through some of these towns that didn't have the initial infrastructure in place to be able to take them. We needed to do a fair amount of groundwork and uh, coming up with, uh, with solutions to get around these towns. And it were built like small side tracks and things just to make the ease of these turbines through these tighter pinch points. Obviously a turbine like this is probably prone to damage if there's vibration out on the road so essentially the roads have got to be prepared fairly well to be able to to get these through safely and without any damage. Warwick Andrews, he's the National Logistics Manager with transport company Rex J Andrews. He was speaking to Jared Lucas and those convoys of wind turbine components out to Jundee Goldmine are set to continue over the next couple of months. 28 to 1 here on The Country Hour. Jonathan Beale in the studio with the news headlines. Thanks, Belinda. Qantas says around 10,000 customers across the state will be affected by today's pilot strike. Network Aviation, a Qantas subsidiary, services regional WA 
anyway and has been engaged in a dispute over pay and conditions with the country's largest pilots union for almost a year and a half. Network Aviation Chief Operating Officer Trevor Morgan says the company's organised alternative flights through Qantas Link services and other airlines. WA's Health Minister says the government's working to repurpose a mental health facility that's been forced to shut down because its operator says it's not financially viable. The privately operated Bethesda Health Clinic in Coburn has stopped taking referrals from today. The facility was opened in March last year, but the operators say it's closing due to a lack of reimbursement from private health insurers and a paucity of psychiatrists. And police are searching the home of the former Bishop of Broome, Christopher Saunders, who is being investigated for sexual misconduct. An investigation into the Bishop commenced in early 2020, but ended the next year without any charges being laid. Detectives confirmed last month that they had recommenced the investigation. Bishop Saunders has denied any wrongdoing. More news, Belinda, at one. Thank you so much, Jonathan. 27 to 1. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon and still to come between now and the news at 1. Uh, Avocados Australia has cautiously welcomed an in-principle agreement between the Maritime Union of Australia and the country's second-largest container terminal operator, DP World. So you'll hear the latest on that situation. And obviously, uh, when it comes to fresh produce like avocados, anything, any sort of disruption at the ports is a major concern because the, the timing of getting produce like that from one point to the next is critical. That's to come between now and the news at one. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow with you this afternoon. Caroline, we know it's hot around Western Australia, but let's start with a look at northern and eastern parts of the state. And do we still have the thunderstorm activity underway? Yeah, we do, Belle. Uh, so up in the Kimberley, uh, thunderstorms did continue uh, overnight and during this morning as well. Um, rainfall totals uh, around the 20 to 30 mils in some places uh, out of those thunderstorms and that's what we can kind of expect uh, through parts of the Kimberley still with the thunderstorms over the next couple of days. Uh, the area today is throughout the Kimberley and with chance getting into eastern parts of the Pilbara in, into no- the north interior as well. And then as we progress during the week, I'll just stick with the thunderstorm area to start off with, Bell, over the next few days. Uh, in the north, uh, as we progress into Friday, uh, thunderstorms uh, throughout uh, the Kimberley, getting into northwestern parts of the north interior, into the Pilbara and just touching into the far adjacent North Gascoigne. Now, those thunderstorms in the Pilbara, particularly sort of near the coastal parts, uh, could be pretty gusty, um, could Slight chance of getting some damaging wind gusts out of them, so that'll be we'll watch that tomorrow and see how they progress during the day. Uh, the steering winds also tomorrow, so uh, the winds that are uh, direct the thunderstorms are coming from the southeast. So we could actually see them get pretty close to the coastal locations because they don't always get towards the coast in the Pilbara as well. Um, so we could see them get pretty close or even get over the coast uh, coming tomorrow, probably more later in the day. Uh, coming into Saturday, thunderstorms more confined to um, mostly the Kimberley and possibly just getting uh, 
forming on the trough there in the western inland parts of the Pilbara on Saturday. And then they really get more confined to those northeastern parts of and mostly just the Kimberley and the northeast interior coming into Sunday and Monday. Um, the remainder of the, the north and eastern parts are mostly clear, Belle. Um, and as you said, it's going to be hot. So not a lot of change from uh, the last couple of days when it comes to those northern and eastern parts of the state. We're going to have some pretty fresh uh, easterly winds and east-northeasterly winds through most parts. Um, the Pilbara area is going to be four to eight degrees uh, above average. The Gascoigne is probably going to be uh, the hottest area above average, uh, where it's getting sort of that six to ten, even twelve degrees above average, particularly in those uh, western parts. And the peak in the temperature looks as though it's going to be uh, later on in the weekend or potentially early next week. Gascoigne Junction looks as though it's going to peak around forty, those high forties, forty-eight uh, degrees. Inland parts of the Pilbara, sort of the mid forties or getting up into forty-sixes. Uh, and also just in that southwestern part of the Kimberley. So there is a heat wave uh, warning for parts of the uh, Dampier Peninsula um, and also extending through down the west coast of uh, the Gascoigne Bell. And this trough is certainly making its presence felt in the Southwest Land Division too. Talk us through it, Caroline. Yeah, that's right, Belle. So we've got that ridged, uh, dominant ridge to the south and we've got the trough uh, deepening down the west coast and just continuing to push those northeasterly winds uh, towards the west, particularly the west of the Southwest Land Division. Uh, so those temperatures along the west coast are, are pretty hot uh, at the moment. We're seeing really warm temperatures uh, through uh, the central west district strict uh, as it is. Um, so getting into the low 40s already through a good, or pretty much the whole uh, central west district. Kalbarri even looking at 45 today and inland parts getting to 42 degrees and creeping into parts of the lower west as well and high 30s into uh, those western parts of uh, the central wheat belt. Um, as we uh, progress into Friday and Saturday, uh, very similar conditions but temperatures generally going, those hot temperatures are going to extend further south and get right down to the south coast and uh, increase by a couple of degrees as well. So whatever uh, sort of temps you're sort of seeing today, I expect them to be a couple of degrees warmer potentially on Friday and even peaking on Saturday for the western parts. And then on Sunday we start to see uh, potentially that the hotter temperatures progress uh, east and get into those eastern parts of the southwest land division. I guess... Uh, the trough uh, has moved inland uh, on Monday, so uh, by Monday we will see a little, a little bit of reprieve, particularly through just that southwest Perth to Albany area and then along the south coast. There are indications that the trough could move through a little bit earlier on Sunday. If that is the case, then some of those temperatures uh, could be a little bit uh, on a little bit less uh, than uh, what we were thinking of yesterday uh, for that southwest corner there. So. Um, just that's a watch point if the trough does move in. If it does ha linger near that west coast a little bit longer, then the temperatures will be up there again on Sunday. But it moves through on uh, potentially Monday and we get a fresh and gusty south to southeasterly uh, change uh, progressing through most parts of the southwest land division by Monday, Bell. So a little bit of reprieve. Um, temperatures in the mid-20s along the south coast and as you progress, uh, sort of getting into the low 30s a little bit further, sort of around the Perth area and adjacent parts and then just a little bit. So um, 
yeah, it's not the coolest change coming, Belle, early next week, uh, but it is a little bit of reprieve before we see the temps just uh, potentially pick up again. And just looking further afield, uh, the next trough uh, deepens by Thursday next week, and at this stage it is looking active. So when I say that, it does look as though there could be thunderstorms progressing right down from the Pilbara through the Gascoigne and into uh, the Southwest Land Division by th- uh, Thursday next week. And just recap of those warnings, Caroline. Yes. uh, Sorry, Belle, I didn't mention uh, the fire danger um, ratings uh, with those hot temperatures and uh, the east-northeasterly winds, particularly through western parts and uh, southern parts of the southwest land division. We are seeing elevated fire danger uh, ratings, Uh, but we do have a uh, fire weather warning uh, for western and uh, southwestern parts of the southwest land division. Uh, There's the heatwave warning extending all the way down the west coast from the Gascoigne right down to the uh, southwest corner and also including the dampening Dampier Peninsula there in the Kimberley and we do have a coastal wind warning around the southwest corner there from the Lewin coast across to the Esperance coast. Thank you so much Caroline 19 to 1, Richard Hudson in the studio and Richard there's been some more rain in the Kimberley. Yeah very similar to yesterday, it's the only region to get any rain. Bedford Downs Airstrip 6, Billaluna 25 Curtin Airport 21 Tabisa 8, Elquestro 16 Ellenbray 6 Gibb River 14, Columbaroo 6, Kununurra had between 11 and 14 across a few locations, Lansdowne 12, Lombardina 20, Mount Amherst 15, Mount Krause 13, Mount Winifred 7, Nicholson 12, uh, Troughton Island 30, Truscott 11, Hudiala 35 and Warman had 16. Number of fires burning throughout WA at the moment, some at an advice level. But a bushfire watching act is still in place in the city of Albany. So the most recent update came out about 10 minutes ago. This is for the fire around Green Range and Mettler. So that fire is no longer a threat to lives and homes. But there's still about 70 bushfire firefighters, a farmer response unit, the DBCA and DFIS personnel. They're all actively fighting that fire and trying to strengthen the containment lines. It's not contained or controlled still, and there are some variable weather conditions, so the Watching Act could change still, and a fair bit of smoke, as you'd imagine, in the area. So if you're in that region around South Stirling, Green Range, Perongarups, uh, Mount Barker and many peaks, just make sure you slow down, have your lights on and drive carefully. Not surprisingly, the City of Albany has imposed a ban on harvesting, and that includes the use of any equipment that could start a fire. So that's things like engines, vehicles, plant or machinery in paddocks. Um, A total fire ban is also in place today for parts of the Midwest, Southwest and Great Southern. So in the Midwest, Gascoigne region, that's for Chapman Valley, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Northampton. In the Southwest region, it's for Capel, Dardanup. And in the lower west, lower Southwest region, it's for Augusta, Margaret River, Boyup Brook, Greenbushes, uh, Bridgetown, um, Bustleton, Donnybrook Bailing Up, Manjum Up and Nanup. And then in the Great Southern Region, Noangarup and Jeramungup also have total fire bans in place. So you can't do anything that could start a fire. No solid fuel barbecues and no hot work grinding, welding, gas cutting, those sorts of things and no use of four-wheel drives and quad bites, etc. And if you need any more updates on any of those fires, the ones that are at an advice level or a watch and act, or if you're not sure if your shire has a total fire ban in place, just go to Emergency WA, just do a search and you'll get all the latest. Thank you for that, Richard.
17 to 1 here on the Country Hour, and the Water Corporation hopes some new floating dam covers will reduce water evaporation in rural Western Australia. The corporation's great southern regional manager, David Stewart, says they've tried using thousands of interlocking hexagonal discs floating on the surface of dams to reduce evaporation. Yeah, so the trial started um, back in 2020 where we installed the floating covers uh, on the dam at Wellstead. It was just a, a small trial to prove the, the concept of putting an evaporation cover over the dam to, uh, to reduce the evaporation and, and uh, you know, help create a more sustainable water supply. So this, uh, this is now extended into a broader pilot. We've got uh, three dams at uh, Ravensthorpe, uh, Salmon Gums and uh, Lake King. Um, these are these are larger dams which uh, we supply water to, uh, water to the community from. Uh, salmon gums is uh, used for uh, drinking water supply, although we actually haven't been able to supply the community drinking water uh, since 2019, just because we are now living in a drying climate, and the uh, the amount of water that we've been getting into that dam has been reduced. And, and so this is an example of you know the value of this project. We've also installed covers at uh, Ravensthorpe and Lake King. Uh, Ravensthorpe is a is an active drinking water dam. Uh, Lake King is is uh, used to supply uh, our uh, our rural customers, but uh, both of these sites, in fact, all three sites, we do cart water to um, when we need to, uh, both for drinking water at times. So we've got we've got Ravensthorpe, Salmon Gums, Lake King. Uh, we ca- we cart uh, drinking water to all three of those towns, uh, and we've also uh, assisted state government with Department of Water for water deficiency declarations during the previous uh, you know dry period in 19 and 20. Uh, and so all of these towns receive carded water. So if we can create more sustainable drinking water supplies for these communities, uh, that saves money. Uh, it makes it more sustainable for the community. It also you know, reduces greenhouse gases, all those sorts of things associated with carding water. And so provides us an opportunity to provide you know, long-term sustainable water supplies for communities. What we learnt from the trial at Wellstead is that uh, putting these covers on on a dam provides the opportunity to reduce uh, evaporation by as much as 73%. So that's a it's a great saving in a community where uh, rainfall is declining uh, as we you know living in a in a drying climate. Water Corporation Great Southern Regional Manager David Stewart with Mark Bennett, and some people on WA's south coast are saying it's currently as dry as they've ever seen it. If you want to see those hexagonal floating dam covers, just search ABC News and dams and you should find Mark's story. 14 to 1. Avocados Australia has cautiously welcomed an in-principle agreement between the Maritime Union of Australia and the country's second largest container terminal operator, DP World. For fresh commodities exported in containers like avocados, Shipping delays due to ongoing industrial action mean produce intended for international markets was unable to be exported in time. John Tyus is the CEO of Avocados Australia. He says a resolution is good news, but it highlights the vulnerability of fresh food export supply chains. Yeah, obviously it's a, a good move. It's, it's much better than the stalemate that they were at a little while ago. You know, we note that it is an in-principle agreement, so it still needs to, um, you know, go through some steps before, it, you know, it's finalised and, and formalised, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Reflecting on the past few months and the industrial action that we have seen at ports right around Australia, what impact has that had on avocados? Most of our avocado 
harvesting is happening in Western Australia at the moment. So most of our exports have been out through there. So, you know, we've had reports of uh, some of our key exports having lost millions of dollars with fruit that had to be taken off ships and and redistributed uh, elsewhere. Well, it just wasn't going to get to market in decent condition because of the delay in, in containers getting out. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the ships were loaded, and then but there was no certainty about, or containers were loaded. Sorry, and uh, wasn't any, any uh, assurances of when they were going to be shipped, and so those containers then had to be unloaded and redistributed. I think most of it went back into the, the domestic market. So yeah, ca- caused a lot of disruption. When we look at uh, some of the reports around this port issue, there's there's reports of about fifty thousand containers that are in a backlog. And when you you look at the shipping conditions on the ground now, are you still hearing those delays are are still an issue for the WA exporters or is that space clearing up for them? Uh, Look, I think it's clearing. The Western Australian uh, region's actually coming towards the end of its season. Still has a a few weeks to go. So um, I haven't heard recently of any major issues. But, yeah, that, that, that is what happens. You know, we saw it through covid when uh, things got got held up, that those delays continued for for some time. It's it's a bit like when you have an accident on a freeway, you you turn up uh, half an hour later and wondering what's going on, why is everyone stopping? So the supply chain gets disrupted, and it takes you know it certainly takes time for that to even out again. There was a lot of discussion about new markets for Australian avocados. Uh, the WA market regained access into Thailand last year and all avocados nationally can go to India now. Is there a, a risk that you can't supply those new markets that you've just basically got your foot in the door to? Yeah, well, that, that's the risk and not only new markets, but of all of our existing markets. You know, we've got a reputation as a you know supply of good quality product and you know reliable supply, so any disruption like that has a potential to impact on the on the great reputation that we've built over time. We've seen this situation with MUA and DP World seems to be resolved as with this in principle agreement. But does that vulnerability remain, John, when you look at the situation more broadly, where fresh produce, when it needs to go out in a container, that it is vulnerable to industrial action? Yeah, well, any you know any perishable product is uh, is vulnerable to supply chain disruption. So yeah, obviously it can concern that that we need to keep an eye on, and, and hopefully um, you know others uh, in this space can resolve issues uh, quickly without this sort of disruption. Yeah, and what about the increase that we've now seen in the port charges in some of the container surcharges? Has there been much discussion within industry about that and, and how exporters will navigate those increased costs for containers? No, not not directly. I haven't had conversations with people about those. Um, you know, I guess costs of everything continue to increase, it seems. And yeah, it's just a, just a fact of life. But it will certainly impact on you know on our, on our cost structure and and what we need to charge in the markets that we're supplying. You know, the industry in the past were fairly small volumes we've exported and, and mostly air freight. But in just in the last probably one to two years, there's been a significant shift in the industry to sea freight because we're we're now moving much bigger volumes. The majority of our uh, exports are now being sea freighted. John Tyers from Avocados Australia speaking to Joe Prendergast. Since September last year, union strikes and work bans at ports are estimated to have cost the economy $84 million each week. 
and caused a backlog of 50,000 containers at ports in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and here in Fremantle. The agreement between DP World and the MUA has been struck but is yet to be signed off by union members. Eight minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The daughter of a Queensland grandmother who was allegedly stabbed to death calls for calm amid fears of vigilantism. Pressure increasing on the federal government to take action over allegations of supermarket price gouging. And are smart cars becoming too smart? Consumer advocate group Choice says new Toyota vehicles, which collect personal data, could pose a threat to privacy. Those stories are much more on The World Today. Eight minutes to one here on the Country Hour. And just a reminder that no Mount Barker cattle market report today. It is a two-day sale. Uh, It's the winners today, the trade sale tomorrow. So Tracy Kilner here tomorrow, around about this time, going through the details of those two sales. Seven minutes to one o'clock. A group of Nii Vanuatu seasonal workers has launched what's been described as Australia's largest sexual harassment claim against their former employer. The 12 women are taking one of Australia's largest horticulture companies, Perfection Fresh, to court with accusations of not providing a safe workplace. Perfection Fresh has farms in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia – And the allegations relate to incidents at a work site in South Australia. That's a song called Heat of the Sun. It's part of an album launched this week by a group of seasonal workers calling themselves the Perfection 12. The women, who are all members of the United Workers Union, are taking large horticulture employer Perfection Fresh to court. They're suing the company for nearly $4 million, alleging they were sexually assaulted while working at a tomato glass house in South Australia. Pacific Beat reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke to United Workers Union representative Katerina Chinani. This case uh, that's been brought against Perfection Fresh is we believe one of the biggest sexual harassment cases in Australia. These women, and there are 12 women who have come forward, 11 of them are seasonal workers from Vanuatu, but one actually is a woman who is based locally in South Australia. The circumstances surrounding the case are that there are allegations of ongoing systematic Uh, harassment and abuses that have occurred. Uh, The women uh, work in a glasshouse facility in Two Wells in South Australia, which is one of the largest tomato glasshouses in Australia, and they pick and pack all the baby tomatoes that probably end up in our lunchboxes. And many of them have been coming to Australia and working over an ongoing period of time, like multiple years. These incidences occurred over a period of time and were repetitive and ongoing. And it's only really been because these women have organised themselves and spoken through their union that these stories have been revealed. The, The company Perfection Fresh claims it's not responsible for what happened to these women because it suspended, it took action and suspended these employees. Why do you believe the company does have a responsibility here? There's a number of factors. Firstly, 
legally, employers have a responsibility to provide a safe workplace. These women were working in the Perfection Fresh Glasshouse when these incidents occurred. The perpetrators were Perfection Fresh employees. But ultimately, the moment they enter that glasshouse, it is the employer's responsibility to ensure that the workplace that these women are working in is safe. It's free from sexual harassment. No woman should be asked to go to work and face what these women have. So it's legally their responsibility, but actually morally, it's their workplace. This is where these incidents occurred. We've got everything from sexual propositioning, inappropriate language and behaviour, instances of physical groping and sexual assault. One woman has documented a hundred allegations of groping. And it's occurred in the glasshouse itself where these women work. Therefore, it's the employer's responsibility to ensure that that did not occur and to provide mechanisms to ensure that it does not occur for any other woman in that workplace. Were these women particularly vulnerable because most of them were seasonal workers? I mean, all 12 women are insecure casual workers. 11 of them happen to be on a a seasonal work visa. So the common factor is that employment model of insecure work, it is a driver, uh, an underlying driver of, of exploitation. And, you know, if your shifts and income are dependent on the rostering arrangements and ensuring that you have favour with whoever it is that's in charge of rostering, then that model of employment lends itself to abuse. And that's what's occurred here. So it's not particularly that they were on a visa because it has occurred to other women in that workplace who were not on visas. It is that they're in insecure work plus they're on an insecure visa. And so the threat of not getting shifts in income is huge when you rely on that, and especially when you've come from... Um, another country and that is your sole source of income uh, while you're here and you rely on it to send money back. United Workers Union Representative Executive Director Katerina Chinani ending that report from Elsie Kennedy and Mackenzie Smith. Perfection Fresh has issued a statement and it says that it takes any allegation of sexual harassment extremely seriously And the company says it treats the complaints made against two employees very seriously when they were raised. Perfection Fresh says in both cases, it took immediate steps to remove the persons accused of sexual harassment from the workplace and to investigate the matters that were raised. And in both cases, the accused employees were sacked. The case will go to the federal court, so Perfection Fresh says until that case is heard, it can't make any further comment. You're listening to The Country Hour, and it's a minute away from the news at one. This week on Landline, fired-up farmers question what happened to the El Nino. We as farmers don't just use the weather to work out if we're going to take our coat to the park. It's actually financial for us. And the big dreaming brothers behind the largest organically certified land parcel in the world. My dream is to create an iconic Australian business and I want to have impact that actually is seen around the world. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. 
Just repeating the top story today, a new grain grower lobby group has officially been launched with a key focus of reinstating rebates for growers who sell their grain to the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, and getting together for their inaugural meeting at Narrambeen tomorrow. Good to talk to you today. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.